You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. <clears throat> but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, and that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God, for your word. We need you, Lord. We need you every hour. We need you in this hour specifically to help us to understand your word, to trust your word, believe in your word all the more, apply your word, appropriate your word, and obey your word. Please help us in Christ's name. Amen. This is a torch night, so fourth through sixth graders, if you'd like to go and have a conversation with your peers about 2 Corinthians 8, the wards are excited to do that with you. We will be in 2 Corinthians 8, the text just read by our brother Jared, and, uh, but first I want to paraphrase Luke 19 for you. Join in if you've memorized it. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Come on. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree, and he said, what? Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today, for I'm going to your house today. What happened in that house? that day. Zacchaeus was a snake. He probably jumped up in that tree to see what he could gain from those around him. He exploited those around him. He's a tax collector. He, he, he shaved money off the top as he paid the occupying Romans and extorted money from people. And yet, 
He walked out of his house that day with joy in his heart in Jesus, Luke 19 tells us. And he was willing to give away half of what he had. And he said, anyone whom I've defrauded, I'm going to give them back four times what I took from them. The chapter before in Luke 18 was another rich man, a ruler of the synagogue who loved his money more than anything. He said, how can I inherit eternal life, Jesus? Jesus said, you know the commandments, obey them all. And he said, I have from birth, which should be our first clue that something's wrong. He's so confident that he's obeyed all of God's commands. And Jesus said, well, then there's one thing you lack still. Go and sell all that you have and give it away to the poor. And the man left sad because he was extremely rich. There's a grace that landed on Zacchaeus that day that missed and was rejected by, really, the rich young ruler. Jesus said to Zacchaeus, salvation has come to this house this day. Was it because he gave up so much money that salvation came to his house? Whoa! That's a lot of money, Zacchaeus. Salvation is yours. No, it was the fruit of the salvation. It was the proof of his salvation. And yet, the rich young ruler's proof was in his lack of generosity, his stinginess with his money. As Ryan mentioned earlier, I'm your off week. We're taking a break from... 1 Timothy, just today, in order to look into what ought to prepare us for what we hope will be a season of self-reflection, a season of gospel reflection, a season of Jesus cherishing, a season of radical generosity toward those who are in need. We're going to give you a free book. If you're in a gospel community, you get a free book. It's called The Treasure Principle. It's written by Randy Alcorn. And what the foundation we're going to lay today in 2 Corinthians 8, we're going to try to build on in the coming weeks in your gospel community that you might read this book and discuss it and see how we might apply the principles from Scripture about stewarding what God has given us. And as Ryan mentioned, as pastors, we want to make sure we're doing a good job at this. Jesus talked a lot about money. And it's been here and there with us here at this church. And we're two years in. We're almost two years in. And we're almost... Self-sufficient, right? That's a bad word for Christians to say ever, but we're almost self-sufficient financially as a church in, order to, in, in, in that we're giving just over what our budget says. You can look in the liturgy every week and track that. I'm talking to members, by the way. When you start talking about this kind of thing, especially the giving and the sustaining of the church in finances and the radical sending of money to go and plant more churches and help those in, experiencing poverty around the world, I'm talking primarily to the members here. And we'll talk at the end of the message today about how we might apply these principles, but we want to dig in to Corinthians here and see what God has for us and what he challenges us with by way of motivation, by way of practice when it comes to giving. Just a bit of context here in case we're tempted to get confused between what Paul's doing in Ephesus with Timothy and what he's doing here in Corinth. Paul's relationship with Corinth is complicated It's up and it's down. If you're reading through the Bible reading plan, you've been in the book of Acts recently, if you're caught up. And and in Acts 9, Paul gets knocked off his horse. He is saved by Christ. He sees the truth. He believes it. His ministry really doesn't pick up until Acts chapter 11. And, And Paul's typical cycle when he goes to a city is he'll arrive, 
He'll, he'll preach the gospel first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. You hear him say that actually in Romans. But first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. He'll go to the synagogue and he'll start preaching. This is the Messiah to come. Jesus has come. This is how you are saved from your disobedience to the law that you've been trying to obey so much. And oftentimes he got kicked right out. A few would secretly believe and follow him out the door. And then he would go to the Gentiles of those cities. He would travel all over the Mediterranean world, sharing with the Jews first, often being rejected, and then sharing the gospel with the Gentiles. Then he would organize a church over a year or so, generally, and then he would move on. He would appoint leaders and move on, leave some of his associates there and move on. And then he would often send an associate back to that city and ask for a report. How are they doing with that gospel? How's the gospel transforming them? Are things in order in that church? Is faith producing fruit in that church? And he would get that report back and then he would write a letter to them. And this is how we get much of our New Testament. And as Paul went through these cycles with these cities, he expressed a unique burden, not just for people to be saved, but for people to prove their salvation by giving. By giving specifically to those who are suffering material poverty. We see this because in Galatians, Paul says that he went to Jerusalem to meet with James and Peter and John. And they said to him, yes, we will stay here and minister to the Jewish people. You go out and minister to the Gentiles. They said, but don't forget the poor. And he says, I was eager to not forget the poor, to remember them in all my travels. And to help the churches that I plant remember them as well and help them. Paul was eager to do it. In Romans 15, he talks a bit more logistically about this and the the purpose behind it. At present, he's telling the Romans, at present, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. So the Christians in Jerusalem needed aid. There's a famine that struck in the book of Acts. And he was doing a collection, Paul was, to all the churches he had planted. I'm headed back there, he says to the Romans, for Macedonia and Acacia. They've been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. We'll come back around to what that meant. For if the Gentiles, he says, have come to share in the spiritual blessings, those that came from Jerusalem, from the gospel, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So Paul, along his cycle through all these cities, as he planted and and heard reports back and wrote to them, he was always pushing them to give, and he was collecting, and he was taking it to help other believers. So this cycle is in effect. In Acts 16, he he sees a vision from a man in Macedonia. And the Macedonian man is saying, come to us. And so Paul goes there to Philippi, to Thessalonica, to Berea. And things go pretty well. He plants churches there. Then in Acts 18, he he moves on to Corinth. And he's writing back to the Macedonians, encouraging them. The book of Philippians, the book of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. And then in Acts 19, he's moved on from Corinth to Ephesus. And something goes wrong in Corinth while he's in Ephesus. He starts hearing from his associates that have gone out to see how the Corinthians are doing. And things are not going well. Sexual immorality is becoming rampant and approved of. There's disunity in the body over things like money and poverty. And the Lord's Supper even. Paul is disturbed by this. So he writes. He actually wrote four letters to the Corinthians. We only have 
three of them. He wrote a very brief one, then he, then he was misunderstood. He wrote 1 Corinthians. He, he even visited them, wrote a harsher letter saying, you guys have got to get your stuff in order. And then, praise God, he began to hear reports of their repentance. Coming around to all the things that were brought up in those first three letters and in his visit, this harsh visit that he had to do to them. And in 2 Corinthians, he's celebrating. 2 Corinthians is a celebration. It's a celebration of joy and hope for them because he's like, you're starting to repent. You're, we're starting to see the effects of the gospel knock down those barriers that have come up in your selfish sin and greed and lust. And that's where we find ourselves in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He had asked earlier in 1 Corinthians 16, as he started laying out what it looks like for them to repent, he said, I'm coming to you. Let me read just a bit from 1 Corinthians 16 to set up our context even more. Now concerning the collection for the saints, so Paul's always doing this, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable that I should go also, then they will accompany me. So even as he's calling the Corinthians to repent, he's saying, hey, you're going to be a part of this. This is what's going to happen. This is an outflow of who you are and of the gospel being planted among you. Now in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul is eager for there to be more proof of their repentance. About halfway through the book, and he's eager for there to be more proof of their repentance. He's glad for what's going on there, but he wants to see some Zacchaeus kind of repentance going on. And he wants to warn them against rich young ruler hardness. And the outline for 2 Corinthians 8 that we're going to work through tonight is verses 1 through 7. If you want to look down there, if you have it in front of you. Verses 1 through 7 is God's grace to the Macedonians. Then verses 8 through 10, God's grace through Christ. And then finally, the last section, God's grace through us. God's grace to the Macedonians, God's grace through Christ, and God's grace through us. So first, God's grace to the Macedonians. Verse 1, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now what could Paul say next? There's a number of things he could say from the church in Philippi. You remember the church in Philippi? Lydia, the, 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 the worker of purple goods, a fabric, and, and the slave girl who was being um, trafficked, essentially, and uh, manipulated and extorted for basically um, ca- uh, predicting things that were going to happen in fortune-telling because she was basically possessed by a demon and her owners. And then there was the jailer, who after Paul and his friends basically cast out the demon from the slave girl and after God opened Lydia's heart to receive the gospel, it caused a commotion in Philippi and they were arrested and they were taken to jail, locked up. They were singing hymns at midnight. All of a sudden the place shakes. All of a sudden the gate, the door opens to the cell and the jailer runs in about to commit suicide. And Paul says, don't do it, we're all here. And he says, how can I be saved? Like you're saved. This whole household was saved that day. 
There are a lot of things Paul could have said after verse one. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God in the little slave trafficked girl. We want you to tell, tell you about the grace of God in Lydia and in the jailer. That's not what he says here. What did Paul pick to express how God's grace had been manifested in the Macedonians and what grace had been given to the Macedonians? Verse two, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I'm sort of a math guy. I really like it when complicated equations work well. And it drives me crazy when equations don't make sense. And this equation doesn't make any sense in our worldly thought and worldly ways, does it? Listen to this equation. Severe affliction... Extreme poverty equals what? Severe affliction plus extreme poverty equals lameness is what it equals, right? Sorrow, deep sadness, anxiety, fear, desperation, job hunting, crying out to God for mercy. That's not what Paul says. Here's why this equation works. It works because there's a new variable involved that we as sinners, we as creatures, we as humans can't interject on our own. It's called the grace of God. And when the grace of God interrupts severe affliction and extreme poverty, it's almost like slamming the whole thing with a negative sign. You mathematicians with me? You slam that whole equation with a negative sign and it ends up being everything that was negative is now on the positive side. And you're like, boom. Abundant joy and overflowing wealth of generosity. God's grace was the negative sign they needed to complete and to live in the impossible equation. We move on here, verse three. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and more than that, beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. I want you to notice a few things here. They gave beyond their means and of their own accord, Beyond their means, they gave more than they could give, even perhaps more than they should give. They were already struck by poverty themselves. They were already afflicted, and yet they're giving. What do you think this looked like? What did it sound like around their dinner tables? Honey, I know we haven't eaten in a day or two, but I think we'll be okay if we go a day or two more. I know you want to get more training and education, son, but that costs us. We're going to sacrifice that this week. We're going to sacrifice that this month because Paul the Apostle, you remember what he told us about Jesus? We're looking at all our finances through that lens now, my boy. It's 
hard for us to relate, isn't it? It's hard for us to relate. When's the last time you thought about missing one meal on purpose for the sake of others eating one? They did it beyond their means. They did it of their own accord. How many pastors of churches have to stand up behind their pulpit and bang on their pulpit and beg their people or even worse, guilt their people into giving? Paul did not beg them. He did not guilt them. They begged him. And why? Because they saw this as favor, more favor from God. We want to experience more of God. So take more of our stuff from us so that we might experience more of the joy of serving and loving others with what we have. They begged for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. When they are relieved, we will feel God's favor. We want to be a part of it. Let us be a part of it, Paul. Quit holding out on us, Paul. Let us be a part of it. This could be even a backhanded way of correcting the Corinthians. Because before the sin set in, in Corinth, Titus had come. Paul had sent him to start the collection, to start collecting. And because that sin set in, this collection came to a screeching halt. You see the contrast between the Philippians, the Thessalonians, Thessalonians, and the Bereans who gave readily out of their affliction and poverty, and how the Corinthians were so wrapped up in self, so wrapped up in sin, that they lost track and just stopped collecting. They gave first to the Lord. Paul wanted the Corinthians to see the Macedonians. And he wanted them not to just imitate them, like, oh, they gave a lot, we could give a lot. They gave sacrificially, we'll give sacrificially. In fact, Corinth was a much richer city, more of a port, better economically set off. So they could have outdone the Macedonians and said, whoa, look at ours. But Paul wants them to give themselves to the Lord. And he wants them to prove that they have given themselves to the Lord by giving themselves financially to others. That's what the Macedonians did. He's saying, look, they gave themselves to the Lord first. Romans 12, 1 and 2, in view of God's mercy, be transformed by the renewal of your mind and offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind and offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your act of worship. Give yourself to God first. Verse 6, accordingly. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. I don't know how comfortable you are with the word act and grace being that close, but the anti-legalism in me just gets a little bit jittery, I'll be honest. Verse 7, but as you excel in everything, oh great, I'm about to be told to do something, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace. Before this hoopla of sinfulness brought the Corinthian giving and collecting to a halt, Titus had come to collect They got distracted by impurity. They got distracted by love of self. 
yet Paul is commending them here. He's saying, you're growing in your faith. You're believing the gospel more. That is wonderful. Christ Church, we see this in you. We actually see this happening in our gospel communities. We hear it from your leaders. We see it as we interact with you. Faith is increasing, and Paul's celebrating it, and we are celebrating it here. In your speech, he says to the Corinthians, you're excelling in faith. You're excelling in, in, in speech. You're excelling in knowledge. Paul's grateful. We are grateful. And yet Paul does not neglect what's next. And we're neglecting what's next, us as your leaders. And so we've come to believe that we need to challenge this church, encourage this church, challenge this church to excel in the grace of giving all the more as fruit of what we have and who we are. Excel not just, what does this excel mean? It doesn't just mean wait until in the middle of the night one one night, grace wakes you up and writes the check for you and gives to your church and gives to those suffering abroad and gives to those needing to go among the nations and reach them with the gospel. Excel means do it. And do it well. And do it well rooted in in the fact that God is giving it to you as you do it well. Isn't there a paradox in there somewhere? There's a paradox in there for us. We wonder, are we doing this? Or is God doing this? The answer is yes. And as we press into God's grace more, we will see the fruit of it more as we excel in giving. Just like spiritual disciplines lead to more understanding, more appropriation of God's grace in all areas of our life, in our faith, our speech, our knowledge, our purity, our walk with the Lord, our community, our mission. Do we do spiritual disciplines begrudgingly sometimes? Do we always do them because they're just an overflow of who we are and what God has done for us? No, we don't. Let's be, just be honest, right? But as we continue to do them, God continues to pour out his grace in them for us to see who he is, to see who we are, and to act on it, and to delight in it all the more. So the Macedonians are an example. I don't think the Macedonians are a motivation. I really don't. In fact, I think that's part of Paul's making sure that we don't become legalists here by saying, oh, Macedonians gave, better give. No. Here's your motivation, Corinthians. Here's your motivation, Christ Church. Verses 8 through 10, God's grace through Christ. Verse 8, I say this not as a command. We'll get to that later. He actually is commanding them to do this, but he uses language like that in 1 Corinthians 7. He doesn't have a direct word from Jesus that the Corinthians are to collect for the Jerusalem Christians, but he is with apostolic authority telling them to do it later. So don't get caught up too much on not as a command. But here's why he is saying it. To prove by the earnestness of others that your love, the earnestness of others, the Macedonians, their earnestness, to prove by their earnestness that your love also is genuine. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ 
that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. Here he is, Apostle Paul, giving us a command. This benefits you. Where a year ago you started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So Paul's lingering a bit, even before he gets to verse 11 and actually gives us a command or gives the Corinthians a command. He's lingering a bit, of it, a bit here because he wants to make sure that they see the Macedonian example, but then that they're motivated by the right thing. I'm glad you started doing it, Corinthians. I'm really glad, but I'm even more glad that you desired to do it. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying a transformed community of Christians cannot hold on to their stuff stingily. Why? Because Jesus had more of a right to hold on to what he had in richness and in the presence of God, the Father Almighty and the Holy Spirit from eternity past, separate from us, and he loosed his grip on it for us. Did he not? He was rich. He was more rich than anyone of us could imagine being rich. He had all that he ever needed in the presence of his Father and in the partnership of the Holy Spirit. He needed nothing from us. And yet, for the joy set before him, he was incarnate. God became man in order to save mankind in order to share his richness with us, his creatures, who have done nothing but rebel against him. Exchanging our rebellion for his righteousness, experiencing the punishment for our sins on the cross, this is the good news and this is the highest motivation ever because it is the highest exchange that ever could have happened. And we all benefit from it if we've come to repent, if we've come to believe. Jesus has enriched us with perfect righteousness. He has delivered us from the penalty and power and one day the presence of sin. He has forgiven us. He has adopted us. He has indwelled us. He is in the process of changing us, transforming us, growing us, and evermore satisfying us by his love He became poor that we might be enriched. And enriched we are spiritually. This is true for every Christian, no matter how much money's in their bank account, no matter what country they find themselves in, no matter what economic situation they find themselves in, they are enriched in Christ. And because of that, Corinthians, not you don't have to have the severe test of affliction. You don't have to have extreme poverty. You have Christ, Corinthians. That's what will motivate you. To let loose your things. And motivation matters here. Paul's glad to see that in light of the gospel, the Corinthians are beginning to desire to do it. They want to give now. That's what he's most excited about in this section. That they want to do it because of the gospel. This isn't under compulsion. This is cheerful giving. Paul talks a lot about that in the very next chapter, 2 Corinthians Chapter 9, God loves a cheerful giver. And our joyful giving, we've got to get good. 
we want our motivation to be rooted in the gospel and for the sake of the gospel, we've got to get good at connecting the dots. Paul does that later in 2 Corinthians 9. Listen to how he connects these dots for us. Paul says, God who supplies seed for the sower and the bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. The harvest of your righteousness. He's mixing money and spiritual righteousness here, right? But there's a harvest of your righteousness. What are we going to go out into the field and pick? A harvest of righteousness. Not just stuff, but righteousness. You will be enriched in every way. Why? To be generous in every way. Which through us, so giving through us in the collection, will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution to them and for all the others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, Corinthians, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift, the gospel that comes from God, that moves in us, that creates joy and generosity and overflowing wealth towards those who need it. And then it returns to him in praise and glory and honor because they're thanking God for what he did in them. Who's thanking God for what's happening in us right now? Who's on the other end of that? I can tell you some people are. There are people meeting together in a small city in North Africa, week in and week out, very small group, who've never met with other Christians, who profess faith but have never met with other Christians. And in a large part, they're meeting together because you all have sacrificed knowing the gospel for yourself. It stirred in you generosity to send out workers into that harvest field and to take up camp in that city and to hunt for those who might believe and to gather them together. You better believe God is giving glory or getting glory and praise and thanksgiving from people because of your giving already. How much more do we want to do that because of the gospel in us? So if the motivation matters, if we've never connected the vertical to horizontal back to the vertical in our minds and we're not finding this huge amount of joy in our giving, should we just stop giving? No. Don't do that. Keep on Keep on, not just giving though, keep on pressing into Jesus, pressing into understanding your need for the gospel. Hone your inner Zacchaeus, your inner Macedonian. Let the gospel well up in you day in and day out. Cherish the words we cover here in our liturgies. Work through the implications of the gospel and the reality of the gospel in community each week. Cherish Jesus in quiet moments throughout your day and intentional moments in his word. Press into him so that he might infuse what you're doing and motivate it all the more with the gospel. Realize that your eyes were open like Lydia's were. Realize that your bondage and sin was broken like the slave girls, Philippi. Realize that you could have taken your own life in desperation, but God has redeemed your life in Christ. Have we not tasted similar things in the gospel? 
Do we not have sufficient motivation for sharing with those who need? So what? What should the Corinthians do? What should we do? Last section here, verse 11. So now, finish doing it as well. Here we go. He's commanding now. Finish doing it, Corinthians, so that your readiness and desiring it, great as it is now in the gospel, may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you yourself burdened, but that, was, but that is a matter of fairness. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So yes, finally, in verse 11, a clear command. Not a rando command, but a rooted command in grace. You're desiring it now for the right reason, like the Macedonians were. And now I want you to do it. I want you to do it. I want you to give. I want you to collect. I want you to give, Paul says. Paul, this is how he rolls. In every letter that he has, he lays out the gospel as the motivating thing and the true reality, the indicative, and then he puts out some imperatives and said, if that's true for you, Christian, if you're truly saved and you're truly enriched in Christ, then here we go. This is what it looks like manifesting itself towards others. This is what he does here. Be ready for the right reason. That's most important. But now, do it. Give of yourselves to them too. Paul doesn't give this across the board amount though. He just says, give proportionate to what you have. Give proportionate to what you have. You have a lot, give a lot. You have a little, give a little. Make it joyful. Make it sacrificial. Make it regular. And this giving isn't meant to make the giving group poor now and the the receiving group rich, Paul says. But where there is abundance, recognize abundance, Christians, That abundance is meant by God. Recognize that it's there and recognize that it is meant by God not to just sit and collect dust and not just to be there for a rainy day or a hundred rainy days for that matter. It's there to be shared. It's there to produce thanksgiving in others. It's there to produce glory for God in others. Verse 15 is interesting. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Do you know that's from the book of Exodus? God's people were freed from Pharaoh and slavery, taken out in the wilderness. You're going to let us die, God. He's like, wait, I just saved you. I'm not going to let you die. Are you crazy? No, I'm not going to let you die. Here's free bread out of the sky. Miraculous bread. When's the last time you saw miraculous bread fall out of the sky? It's been a while for me. And yet, God produces a bigger miracle than bread falling out of the sky every single day through the millions of Christians across the world because he doesn't just make bread fall from the sky, he makes bread fall from hands that could have kept that bread for themselves. God is using his people to create his miracle bread and spread his miracle bread throughout the world. And not just bread to eat, but Jesus, the true bread, which is why anytime we ever ask you to give as a church, you know what we're gonna do? 
We're going to link things like material poverty and and brokenness and, and need on the economic level with the spiritual need, the true need, the eternal need that people must have in order to experience Christ forever in heaven. You see how Paul's mingling these two things? God is going to use the Macedonians. He's going to use the Corinthians. He's going to use Christ's church to let miracle bread fall from heaven somewhere in the world this year. This year, miracle bread. The gospel is going to fall in places where it's never been. And actual bread is going to be in places, in hands and in bellies, where it wasn't before. So what is our response as a church? Paul says, do this as well. Do it. And we as your elders, we say, let's do it. Let's give. Let's do a few things. Let's prayerfully evaluate our abundance. Let's let's prayerfully evaluate the needs of others. That's what Paul's doing here. Prayerfully evaluate our motivations and our ability in the gospel to do these things, even if it feels radical. And let's band together to supply what is needed both locally, and globally. Here's our challenge to you. Take time in November to truly take this study seriously in the Treasure Principle. The book is called Treasure Principle. I've got copies of it here. Don't come get yours. You're going to get it from your gospel community leader. But the idea is to read it across November and really get started as soon as you can because in November there will be two group studies For the first half of the book, for the second half of the book, and then one of your discipleship groups. Discipleship groups where we normally ask each other, what is God teaching you? Um, um, How are you having trouble obeying the Lord in in life? And and who are you after with the gospel? We're going to turn that one in November into how are you doing with letting the gospel and its implications flow through you and through your budget on an ongoing manner and in this unique season of giving we're calling the church to. So read and take serious this uh, Treasure Principle book with the folks in your group. Number two, reevaluate your own regular giving to Christ's church. Is it according to your means? Is it beyond your means? Where is it? Do you even know where it is? Is it even there? Does it reflect an ever-increasing joy in Jesus because of the gospel Could you honestly look in the mirror and be like, that reminds me of the gospel, what just happened when I clicked that button or wrote that check or however you give, right? That reminds me of the gospel. That reminds me of what Jesus did for me. Have we gotten lazy? Do we keep putting off just the simple administrative task of getting online, of going to the Shelby app on your phone and setting it up? Or, have you already done that? Did that way back when, when we planted the church. It's going, automatic. How much do you give? I don't really remember. We should know, right? Whether it be big, whether it be, we should know. And we should worship the Lord through it. Don't set it and forget it. I'm so guilty of this, right? You just set it and you're like, oh my gosh, I forgot money's going there. Oops. Like, God doesn't want to hear that. He wants to hear... This was a true sacrifice this month. He he wants us around our dinner table saying, boys, I I guess in theory there's other things we could have done, but guess what we got to do this month with that money? 
We got to sustain Christ's church. We got to give to the other ministries that we partner with in the city and in the world. We got to give to the workers who are there spreading the gospel. We have this silly joke around our house where the boy's like, Dad, what would you do if you had this car or that car or this house or that house? I'm like, sell it and send a bunch of missionaries. And they're like, no, but like, I know, but what I meant was like, how fast would you drive? (laughs) So they just stopped asking. I hope it's true in our hearts. And I hope that you're thinking about it regularly. Set a reminder on your phone. Set set a reminder. Make, Make your bank text you that it just happened. So that you can look at it. So that you can go, yeah, that was an outflow of the gospel. Just now, that little reminder on my phone is an outflow of the gospel. Because it's sustaining my local church. It's funding sending out of workers. It's partnering with other ministries to relieve poverty. So reevaluate your own regular giving. Number three, overflow in joyful giving to help those experiencing material poverty and spiritual poverty around you here locally. This is going to be very organic. We can't really track this. We can celebrate it when it happens, but it's hard to track. It doesn't even necessarily go through. It can go through the church budget. It can go through the church accounting. It has in the past. But what I'm talking about here is as a gospel community, as you press into the lives of the marginalized, the orphan and the widow, the foreigner, those experiencing material poverty, you're going to find opportunities to come alongside people in relationship to help them in things they need. Do it. Create margin in your budget that's not just going out even automatically every month. Don't take, necessarily take away from that to do this, but take away from something else and do it. Leave a margin in your budget every month so that when a need pops up with somebody that you're in a relationship with, you can actually help them. And you can rally the people around you. Praise God, our group, the gospel is taking root and flowing. And just even more recently, we've had a friend that needed help and our gospel community hadn't even met the person and just said, yes, the gospel's true for us here. We want to walk alongside folks. We want to show them what the gospel does to our hands and opening our fingers and letting our stuff fall through them loosely. Another challenge, overflow in the joy, joyful giving for those experiencing material poverty around the world. Last year, we did a Christmas catalog. We're doing it again this year. You can buy something. This is hard to do, right? It's a little more natural, a little more organic to press into the lives of others here in the city and help them as the need comes up. It's hard to be like, what about that family that lost everything in the disaster and needs a new business? Well, thankfully, we're part of the Southern Baptist Convention and the Baptist Global Relief has their hands and lives and people everywhere in this world. And they're ready to respond with our resources, like Paul, like Titus, collecting from the churches to go and serve people who need it. And some people just need a few fish to get started again. And some people need a new house. And a new house costs about $2,000. And you'll get them shelter right then. And there are gospel-bearing Christians there to deliver it for them in the name of Christ and to deliver the gospel along with it. Three fish will cost you $10. Buy pigs, buy goats, buy cows, buy chickens that all produce food. They all produce income. And they all, by God's amazing design, produce more of themselves for more income. 
for more food. Thankfully, Baptist Global Relief is really discerning in how they address crisis with relief and chronic poverty with development. We're not just throwing a bunch of chickens at people. We're giving them away to earn income. So that why? That they might share their eggs with the unbeliever next to them. And that all of it might end up giving glory to God in the end. We're going to set a goal. It's going to be a little tricky to track, but that's okay. But in our membership and in our gospel communities, we want 100% participation. Whether it's three fish or three months of refuge for a girl that was trafficked and rescued out of human trafficking. Let's all do something because of the gospel. Finally, and lastly, let's engage with an overflow of joy in the gospel with those who have little to no access to the gospel themselves. There are something like 10 to 15,000 people groups defined by their language, defined by their culture, defined by their geography, and about half of them have less than 2% Christians among them. Which means generally, according to missiologists, the church will not repropagate itself there. Someone from another culture, from another language, from another geography, must go in and share the gospel with them. That's why we have people in North Africa. And we are a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. And a long time ago, a young woman named Lottie Moon, 1800s, she was born in 1840, she left for China. She was sharing the gospel with hundreds of people, thousands of people that were coming to faith. And she was just helping start churches. And she would write back to all the Southern Baptists in the States and say, why are there a million Baptists in Virginia and, and, and you can't send more than two Christians for the billions of Chinese? She was talking a little bit of smack back home. But she was bold and she, she called on the Southern Baptists particularly to give sacrificially for this cause. And, her, and she put her money where her mouth was. In fact, she was getting into her 70s, a famine hit there in China. She drained her account over time and gave her last dollar for food for others. She essentially starved herself to death. Before she starved to death, she had written back one of her letters saying, please give towards the relief of the people here who are suffering, in a suffering under a famine. How much did that sound like Paul? And the money did not come. She drained her account. She starved herself to death. She gave her life that others might eat. She gave her life that others might have the gospel. And in her honor, an annual offering is made has been made since 1888 through the Southern Baptist Convention called the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. And the first one was about $3,000 and it sent out three missionaries to the field that year. Last year, it was $159 million and every dollar of it went to send out missionaries to places where the gospel has not taken root yet. Are we in? Let's be all in for that. If our goal for relieving material poverty in the name of Christ through the Christmas catalog is 100% participation, our goal as a church in being part of that hundred and who knows how many millions of dollars that will go, go to send out missionaries 
is $15,000 by the end of this year. We believe we can do it. That's about $100 per covenant member. We've prayed about it as elders. We think this is a reasonable number. Who knows? Maybe it's unreasonable, but who cares if it's unreasonable? We want to be unreasonable. Let's be unreasonable together. Some will only be able to give $10. Others will be able to give $1,000 towards the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. It'll be available as an online way to give. You can give in the offering box if you designate it that way. We will report back to you, not the who, but the how much by the end of the year. If we don't quite reach 15,000, you think we're gonna jump up here and be like, come on, Christ Church, what are you doing? No. We're not really watching it that close. We'll report it as a way to glorify God, but what we really wanna do is press in in community, in our gospel communities, and ask this question. Are we cherishing Christ more? And is it evidencing itself in our relief of the saints and our spreading of new saints among the nations? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. There's another verse to this song. But a happy man was he, for he was saved by the Lord that day, and now a joyful man was he, a very generous man was he. Christ's church, she was a wee little church, and a wee little church is she. But she was saved by the Lord one day, and a joyful little church is she, and a generous church she will be. Let's pray and ask God for it. Father, your generosity to us in Christ is absolutely overwhelming. How could you sacrifice so much, an incalculable amount of peace in the presence of your Son and the joy of your love for him, for us? We don't feel worthy of that. We know we're not worthy of that in and of ourselves, but we do know that Christ is worthy of of the glory that you've received through him because of his sacrifice, because of his life, because of the gospel. And we pray that that gospel would take such heavy and heartfelt and rootedness in our hearts that, that we would overflow. We would overflow in an abundance of wealth and giving to your causes, to your glory, to your people, and to your purposes. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.